Our scripture reading this morning comes from two passages. One is from 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 through 24. And the second is Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. Um, that will be, if you're using a blue Bible in front of you in, uh, in the seats, that's page 955. And the second page is 982. And as you're finding those passages, let's stand for the reading of God's word. First Corinthians seven, starting in verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was when was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when, he, when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now our second passage from Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You may be seated as we reflect together on the word of God. Thank you, Matt and worship team. It would be helpful to have your Bibles open to those two different passages, 1 Corinthians 7 and Philippians chapter 4. Many years ago, my wife kindly pointed out to me that she thought I was discontent. And the way she said it was, Paul, you spend your days living like life is just around the corner. And the way you say it is, as soon as this situation is over, then life If only this one thing would resolve or this person would do this thing, then 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 I would have life. And then she handed me a advertisement torn out of a magazine for a BMW sports car. And for a moment, I thought, oh, my gosh, life, life is coming my way. And it was a top-down photo of this BMW riding on a coastal road that was nothing but turns. Beautiful picture of the car and of the terrain. And the tagline underneath this little advertisement was this, Life is made up of corners. Enjoy the corners. And it's her way of saying, Paul, life is nothing but corners. 
And you keep living for a life that's around the corner. But when you get around the corner, guess what you find? Another corner. So you're never going to arrive. You're going to have to say, I'm alive in the corner. Instead of waiting for something to happen around the corner. And as she was telling me that, I'm sure I was sitting there thinking something very mature like, as soon as this conversation is over, then life could happen again. So spiritually mature. So this morning I want to address really an enormous topic, and that's the topic of contentment. Or subtitle might be a life of corners. And I want to address it in two ways. First, I want to address it to the person who might be here who has a a discontented heart because they're disconnected from Jesus, the creator. So if you're disconnected from Jesus, the creator, then then there's a hole in your heart that the world can't fill up. And so you're always always looking for something else. And so I want to talk just briefly about that. And then secondly, and maybe a little more length, I want to address what might be more of our problems for more of us is people connected to Jesus, but yet disconnected with your current circumstances. You're connected to Jesus, but you're discontented with your life circumstances or or people who, like me, tend to live for life around the corner. So first of all, for those who are restless and disconnected, or discontented because you're disconnected from Jesus, I want to briefly just share a testimony. And that testimony is from a, a great man in church history. His name is St. Augustine. He lived in the, the 4th century B.C., around the 350s or so. And St. Augustine, prior to meeting Jesus, was anything but a saint. He was as far from being a saint as possible. He, was, he had the world by the tail. He was living the dream as so, as so far as that could be done in the 4th century B.C., he was intelligent, he was a professor, he was a sought-after speaker. He was financially stable, he was able to travel, he interacted with the best minds on the planet. He was sexually active, he even fathered a child, but he never made a commitment to being married. So here is a man in the 4th century who's got the dream. This would be the dream. I'm financially stable. People seek after me. I'm, I'm sexually satisfied. I don't have any particular heavy commitments to anything. I, I, I'm, I'm living the dream, as people might say. But incidentally, Augustine was restless. He had everything, but yet he st- his heart was still churned up. And no matter how he tried to satisfy himself intellectually, financially, or physically, it was just never enough. He had a thirst that the world couldn't quench. And perhaps you find yourself in that situation this morning. The details of his encounter with Jesus are written in a book called The Confessions. And in 386, Augustine was living in Milan, which is in Italy. He was 32 years old. He was living with his mistress. He was having outwardly a flourishing life. But he ran across this preacher named Ambrose. 
And uh, because being a powerful speaker was important back in those days, and Ambrose was a power, powerful speaker, Augustine was drawn to come and listen to him. And this is what he says about Ambrose in his confessions. In Milan, I found the bishop Ambrose. His gifted tongue never tired of dispensing the riches of God's word and the truth of the gospel. Yet I was dragged away by the weight of my sin. In dismay, I plunged again and again into the things of the world. I was held firm in the bonds of love, of lust that enshackled and enslaved me. So he had reached out for the world and gotten it, but found out that there were handcuffs on that. And he felt enslaved and shackled. One day, he continues, I found myself driven by this internal churning in my heart to take refuge in a small garden where no one could interrupt, and listen to this phrase, where no one could interrupt that fierce struggle in which I was my own contestant. Some of you have been in that place. You're in a fierce struggle against yourself. I did know it then, but I was dying a death that would bring me life. I was frantic. I was angry with myself for not accepting God's will. I tore at my hair. I hammered my forehead with my fist. I, I was held back by my lust. Again, he s- does such a great job describing this. These lusts plucked at my flesh, and they whispered. So here's a man who's wrestling in a garden against himself, and he's, he sees his problem. And these little, these little lusts are plucking at his flesh, and they're saying, Are you going to dis- dismiss us? Are you saying we shall never be with you again forever and ever? In my misery, I kept crying. How long shall I go on saying, tomorrow, tomorrow, why not now? Why not make an end of my ugly sins at this moment by trusting in Christ? Then I heard the voice of a child in a nearby house repeat, repeat, repeating the refrain, take up and read, take up and read. So I seized the Bible, I opened it, and I read the first passage in which my eyes fell, Romans thirteen, thirteen. So he's in this great battle. He hears this little child singing what's probably some kind of song. He runs to the Bible. He just flips it open and he puts his finger down. Romans 13, 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in drunkenness, sexual immorality, or sensuality. But arm yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and make no more provision for the flesh. I had, no wish, I had no wish to read more <laughs> and no need to. For in an instant, as I came to the end of the sentence, it was though a light of contentment flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. And what Augustine discovered was no new discovery. It was the same discovery the woman at the well discovered. The woman who had tried to find her hopes in men and sexual relationships, but she kept reaching out for things that ended up handcuffing her as well. It's the same discovery many of us us in this room have made. 
And Augustine concludes very famously, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So for the restless heart that's discontent because it's disconnected from Jesus, I offer this biography. And maybe this is the day. Maybe you felt the same way. You've been in this uh, fierce battle within yourself and you you know the issues. You just don't really want to give them all over to Jesus. And you say, oh, tomorrow, tomorrow, maybe this is the day for you. Maybe hearing Romans 13, 13 for you, arm yourself with Jesus Christ and do it today. Don't live hoping that somehow around the next corner, if this thing with my my business could work out or this thing with my relationship would work out or as soon as my health gets better, then I could finally find it. You're going to constantly be reaching things for for things that will enslave you. And so make this today, day, the day that you say, no more tomorrows. Give yourself to Jesus. The second group of people I want to address, and this might be more of us in this room, are the people who've done that. They felt that discontentedness in their souls, and they realized the things that they were trying to shove into that God-shaped vacuum in their soul didn't fit until they really found God. But somehow, after finding that, they start leading their lives, and, and they still find some kind of discontentment. That's what I want to talk about this morning for the rest of our time. And it's a, it's... What Paul is trying to help us understand is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and Philippians, he's addressing this contentment. He's writing a letter to people inside the church to try to help them understand a kind of contentment. He's going to call it a secret or a mystery. And so I want to talk about three lessons from Paul on contentment. But before I do that, I just want to make two quick observations about what contentment doesn't mean. Number one, contentment isn't opposed to crying out to the Lord in prayer and asking your friends to help carry your burdens. Contentment isn't opposed to crying out to the Lord and saying, God, I'm, I'm in a terrible place. I'm struggling. Help me. This is the Psalm of Lament, Psalm 10. This is Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, calling out, Lord, is, is there any way this cup could go by me? And what does Jesus do? He brings three of his friends. Can you help me pray? He's even assisted by an angel. So because you might be in a difficult place and you might say, well, I guess contentment is just being okay with everything. That's not what we're talking about. You might be in a real struggle in some way, and it's okay to call out to the Lord. It's okay to ask your friends to help you with that. Secondly, contentment doesn't mean you're unaware of affliction and trouble. Contentment isn't pretending suffering isn't real. It's not like, well, I'm content now, so there really is no suffering. No, there really is suffering. And when you read Romans 8:28, which says all things work together for good, it doesn't mean that currently all things are good. They might not be good. 
They might be terrible. And we're trusting God is going to work things out for good. But right now you might be in a place of suffering. You might be in a place that isn't good. And you need to cry out to the Lord. You need to have friends come around you and help you and be encouraged. So two qualifiers as we think about that. So three lessons from contentment. Philippians chapter 4. Paul says, first, first lesson, it's something to be learned. Notice that? It's not sort of a gift at the beginning of your Christian life. No, you, 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 give, coming into the kingdom is a gift. But then as you get in, there's something you have to, there's lots of things you have to learn. And Paul says one of the things you have to learn, verse 11 and repeated in verse 12, is you have to learn contentment. It's not automatic. It's something actually you have to train for. So that's my first point. Which leads to my second point. Okay, if it's something I have to learn, something I have to train for, what's the training process? What, what would I have to do to learn how to be content? Because I'm interested in that. My heart is restless. I constantly am looking around the corner. I don't want to be that kind of person. I want to be able to live in the present. And Paul gives us what I, I'm going to call a... A circuit training method of learning contentment. And you see it there in verses 12 and 13. He says this. Here's his, here's his circuit. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Abundance and need. You see the circuit? You know what circuit training is? You go to the gym and you don't just get on one machine. You, you have a circuit, four, five, six, maybe a dozen machines that you go around to different exercises because you want to, you want to get your whole body strong, not just one part. So you set up a circuit. Paul has kind of a circuit here for us. Brought low. That's one machine. Abounding. That's another machine. Facing plenty, facing hunger, abundance and need. Now, when I read that this week, I thought, hmm, that's the Apostle Paul circuit. Here's the preferred circuit for Pastor Paul. I would like to get on abounding and have that followed by plenty. And then after plenty is over, I would like abundance. And then after abundance, I'd take another set of abounding. That would be my circuit. I just want all the good things, all the good pieces of machinery that make me feel good. Isn't that the circuit that you want? And I hate to break it to you if I'm the first one, but that's not God's circuit for your life. If somehow you falsely believe that abounding, plenty, and abundance is God's intended circuit, you're quickly going to get disappointed with God. Because that's not in the Bible. Here it is, right here in Philippians chapter 4. Here's the circuit. Here's how Paul learned how to be contentment. He had both of these things happening in his life. And so he lays out the circuit. And it's been my experience that most of the time in your life, you're kind of doing two exercises at once. You find this happen in your own life? In my family life, things are going well. But in my work, great need. Financially, I'm fine, but relationally, I've got trouble. Most of the time, I find myself on two machines at the same time. It just depends on what area that's happening in my life. 
And Paul is saying this is the circuit training, these different stations that we go around in life, that, that we go around again and again, and this, this is how you learn contentment, which is how you can do all things. See, a lot of times we just lift that verse out. That's, that's the Bible verse that's on every little greeting card and eraser and everything else. Oh, I can do all things. The context of it is contentment. I can be content in any situation. That's the great thing. Not that I can conquer everything. But I'm not conquered by any situation. I'm not conquered by abundance, and I'm not, a conquer, I'm not conquered by need. I can stay content in either of those situations. That's what Paul's talking about. So he's not talking about you can somehow conquer your situation. No, he's saying you can make sure you can stay in that situation and not be conquered by it. That's a great thing. That would take a lot of learning. That would take a lot of training. To do So that's what Paul's talking about. So first of all, it's something to be learned. Secondly, it, there's a circuit. There's a training mechanism to learn it. This is how you learn it. You, you're in all kinds of different situations in your life. Many of them are good. Plenty of them are bad. And in that time, you develop this muscle to, to be content with God. And so my third lesson here, what's the secret What, what do we learn by going around this circuit again and again? And I would say the, the secret is you learn how to tr- absolutely trust in God's sovereignty. 1 Corinthians 7. You, the, you go around these circuits, and as you go around these circuits, you begin to learn to say, God is completely in control whether I'm in plenty or I'm in want. And because that's true, I can be content. I can trust him. Now, the way Paul puts it, he doesn't say the absolute trust in God's sovereignty in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Look at the words that he uses in verse 17. He calls it an assignment. You notice that? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has, what does it say, assigned. Don't lead lead the life that you've fallen into. No, you're on assignment. Wherever you all are, Paul's saying, you're on an assignment. You haven't arrived at any location by accident. You're on a particular assignment. Now, as, as Christians... We believe in the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. And now let me just give you just several different examples of how inclusive that sovereignty is. Exodus chapter 20. We trust, we know from Exodus 20 that God is sovereign over the forces of nature and the history of people. Exodus 21, we know he's sovereign over fatal accidents. We know God is sovereignly in control over fatal accidents. Exodus 21. Numbers 22, we understand that he is sovereignly in control over the lips of a donkey. 
Second Chronicles, we understand that he is sovereignly in control over the flight of a randomly shot arrow. Proverbs 16, we understand that God's sovereignly in control of the roll of the dice, the steps of man, and the directions of the decisions of kings. Psalm 147, God is sovereignly in control of all weather. In Jonah, God is sovereignly in control of the swimming pattern and the indigestion of a large fish. Isaiah 45 and Amos 3, God sovereignly in control of all disaster. Matthew 10, God is in sovereignly in control of the death of a single bird. Luke chapter 22, God is sovereignly in control of the actions and movements of Satan himself. Acts chapter 6, God sovereignly in control of the opening of the heart in order for somebody to respond to the gospel. In Revelation, God is sovereignly in control of the end of human history. God is sovereignly in control of absolutely everything that's happening in your life. And you are not sitting here by accident. You are not in any position here by accident. You as a Christian, you're on assignment. You are on an assignment. And your assignment might, might, right now might be plenty or it might be want. But you're not there by accident. You're there by assignment. And Paul's going to talk to us about that in this particular chapter. Wherever you are, you're on assignment. You're not by accident. So just in case you're sitting here and you're thinking, okay, uh, I hear what you're saying, Pastor Paul, and I hear the words from the Bible, but how can I possibly be content in my assignment? I mean, the Apostle Paul never had to live with my spouse. The Apostle Paul never had to live with my children. The Apostle Paul didn't have to work for my boss. The Apostle Paul wasn't part of an oppressed minority. And just in case you might be that person thinking of, uh, there, I hear what you're saying, Paul, but I, I fit in a special category of I can still be discontent. If you're that person, I'm not looking at anybody right now. The Apostle Paul, I think, intentionally picks out three of the most difficult places to be in a life and says, you should learn how to be content in these three places. And that's what I want to finish here. First of all, the whole chapter 7 is about marriage, being married or being single. And this is kind of an odd piece of scripture stuffed in the middle of this chapter about marriage and being single. And so the first thing he does is he, he takes the topic of being single or being married. And apparently in Corinth there were single people, this is hard to believe, who believed that life began once I got married. Know anybody like that? If I just could get married, then, then life would begin. And there were people who thought that way. So the Apostle Paul from chapter 20, from verse 25 to 35, which I won't read, he says, if you're single, embrace it. Maybe for your lifetime or at least right now, that's your assignment. And God needs some people or wants some people who are single who can be content with God to show other people it's okay to be content with God because he's enough. I don't have to have a spouse in order to be complete. So I have to have some Christians who are in this condition and understand, hey, I can be content. 
I might pray for a spouse. I might want a spouse. That's fine. But I'm not discontent until I have a spouse. Now, hard as this is to believe, there were some married couples in Corinth who wished they were single. Again, not looking at anyone. But they were thinking, I thought if I got married, I would have life. Now I realize I really don't have a life. And if I were single, now that would be the life. So that's what some people are saying. And he says in verse 27, don't get a divorce. And in the Greek, when it says don't get a divorce, it means don't get a divorce. (laughs) See, people had gotten unsatisfied in their marriage. Their spouse didn't turn out how they wanted. Some of them thought their marriage was an accident. Some of them had kids and felt stuck. And he takes a look at all those people and says, stay married. Stay married and live with contentment in that situation. Verse 27, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. And even if you're married to an unbelieving spouse, you're on assignment. You are on assignment, Paul says. You're on assignment for your spouse and you're on assignment for your kids. Who knows, he says in verse 16, wife, how do you know that whether you might save your husband or husband? How do you know whether you, your faith, might save your wife? So first situation, if you, you're sitting saying, well, I'm in this unique situation being single or married, then I could be discontent. Paul says, no, I'm shutting the door on that. You could hope for things, you could want things, that's fine. But somehow in that, on that piece of machinery, you have to learn how to be content in that situation. Number two, what if you're a minority in a majority culture? Now, most of us don't have that situation, but if you're a minority in a majority culture, then I can be discontent. I wish I was either back home, I wish this culture was different. Paul says no to that, verses 18 through 20. That's what he's talking about with this whole thing about circumcision. Was anyone at the time uh, of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the mark of circumcision. Was anybody at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything or uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God, 18, 19, and 20. This whole argument is about a culture. It's not 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 about a physical mark. Because if you were a Jewish person and you lived in a Gentile culture or a Roman culture like Corinth, then everybody in Corinth looked down on you. You're one of the circumcised. I mean, it's okay that you're here in our culture and stuff, but you're not on the inside. You're never going to get on the inside. You're a Jewish person. Or if you were a Gentile and you were living in a predominantly Jewish culture, like back in Jerusalem, really to fit in, you should get circumcised. But if you don't get circumcised, I mean, I guess you're okay, but you're not ever going to be on the inside. So either way, either place you might be, people are looking down on you and they're saying, you're not really an insider. You're not really part of the inside group. And and I wish you were, but you, you really can't be. And Paul's saying to those people, it doesn't matter. You're in a different kingdom now. 
You have a whole different set of priorities. So don't try to fit in. Now, how you get uncircumcised, that's not worth our discussion right here from the pulpit. But some people were trying to say, I'm, I'm trying to remove these old marks so I could somehow fit in. I'm spending my whole life trying to fit in. And, and Paul says, just forget about it. Worry about fitting into the kingdom of God. And what does that do? Keep the commandments. That's the, that's the kingdom you're living in. That's the kingdom you're going to. That's what we want to be worried about. We don't want to need to be worried about our culture out here. So if you're married or single, you've got to learn how to be content in that situation. If you're a minority in a majority culture, which in our culture Christians are becoming more and more of a minority, don't, don't worry about fitting in. Worry about doing what God wants you to do. Learn how to be content in that situation. Okay, so I'm supposed to learn how to be content if I have this marriage status or if I have this minority status. What if I'm a slave? I mean, that's got to be a space that if I were in that space, then I could be discontent. I don't have to learn how to be content. Fifty percent of everybody in the Roman Empire was a slave. Verse 21, were you a slave when called? What does he say? Don't be concerned about it. What? I mean, this is where you want the Q&A after the sermon, do you not? Not with Pastor Paul, but with the Apostle Paul. Don't be concerned about it. Don't make that the, the measure of your success. Don't live around the corner saying, well, if I weren't a slave, then I could be content. Learn how to be content as a slave. The Apostle Paul is saying yes to that. Now, let's be clear. He's not saying slavery is okay because he says if you can gain your freedom, do so. But what Paul is saying is don't let you being a slave consume you and define you and determine whether you can be content or not. Apparently, for reasons that I might not ever understand, that person is on assignment. In the most difficult of search situations, God is looking for people to put them in a marriage or not put them in a marriage. To put them in a minority place. Or put them in a majority place. Or put them in a free place. Or put them in a slave place. And in all of those places, I need, God saying, people who can be content. If they can only be content when they're happily married and when they have all their needs met and when they're free, then that's not going to bring people to the Lord. And that's not the circuit I have you on. I have you on a circuit of saying there's going to be times where you have all you need and there are going to be plenty of times you don't. And I need you to learn how to be content in all those situations. You might say, you know, it's easy for Paul to say. Might be easy for me to say, but what about the Apostle Paul? He's the one that said it. And it's good to remember that Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians while 
in prison unjustly. So here he is sitting in a Roman prison cell unfairly judged and saying, guess what, guys? I've learned how to be content. And you know, if you've read Acts 16, when Paul first went to Philippi, what happened to him? Unjustly beaten for helping someone, thrown into prison, an inner cell, it says. But he was on assignment. And who was his assignment? The Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? How is God going to get that message to that person any other way? Except to send somebody on assignment to the inner cell. And that man and his whole family are saved. Because Paul was content. Not saying happy. Content. That God was sovereignly in control of him being in an inner cell. And knew that for some reason that was God's assignment. For the few of you that are Narnia fans. One of my favorite books in the series is The Horse and His Boy. And so if you haven't read it just today, is your day. Go get it. Read it today. It's not that hard. I've read it many times. I was reading it just this last week. And it's about a, a boy who was a slave who's on this adventure to get to basically to Narnia. He's enslaved in a far country. And the whole story is about this adventure. And he's, he doesn't really know who Aslan, the Christ figure, the lion is until the very end. And he's at the very end of the book. He's walking across. If you remember this, he's walking across this mountain pass. It's real foggy and cold. And he finally hears this voice. It turns out to be the lion's voice. And he starts his conversation without really knowing it's Aslan, the lion. He starts his conversation and he says this. Oh, I'm the unluckiest person in the whole world. And then Aslan, very, very wonderfully, beautifully put by C.S. Lewis, Tell me your sorrows. See, you feel that way. I'm the unluckiest person in the world. And when you come to Jesus, what do you say? Just tell me your sorrows. So for about a paragraph, Shasta, the boy, unloads sorrow after sorrow. I was kidnapped as a baby. I was brought up by a cruel fisherman as a boy. I was chased by lions. I had to spend a whole night in a graveyard alone. I had to walk across a blazing desert. I've had very little to eat. Now I'm lost in the mountains. And at the very end of the story, Aslan replies, "Uh, I do not call you unfortunate. And Shasta says, well, don't you think it was unfortunate and all this stuff happens? And then sort of Aslan interrupts and, and then he tells them, he tells Shasta, I was there at every one of those things you just talked about. So you could be saying, you could be Shasta. You could say to me afterwards, Paul, you don't know. I'm the unluckiest person in the world. 
And I would say, God would say to you, none of this is by accident. And somehow over his sovereign design, which you must learn, it doesn't come automatically. He's placed you in these places as an assignment. And although it may not be good now, one day all things will work together for good. Let's pray. Lord, as we think about these two passages, I know for myself, having read it all week, I I thought about all kinds of ways that I could grumble, complain, murmur, and be discontent. And somehow try to work my way out of not having to be content in this situation. I, I constantly feel that pull that after this sermon, then I'll be able to get my schedule right. After this situation, or if this person would just get on board or get off board, then, then everything would work out. I just I find myself having that internal struggle over and over, and maybe some of the people here feel that same way. And this would be helpful to their souls. For anyone here who is discontent, discontented because they're disconnected, would they not leave saying, well, to, maybe tomorrow? Pray for hope for your people by knowing the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.